0: Chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 to 28. Genesis 24, beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had: put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my own son, Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, "O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my father Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and whom shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. Before he'd finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered this journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bought to Nahor. She added, We've plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things.
1: Well, Abraham is now old. And to be honest, I've thought he was old for quite some time now. But here in our passage today, Moses comes right out and says it. Look there in chapter 24, verse one. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And he mentions this, it seems not as some kind of throwaway comment, but to orient us, to make us privy to the fact that Abraham is now in the final season of his life. A season in which he's beginning to contemplate his death. So Abraham knows his age, he knows the reality, and he also knows the things that need to be put in order before he leaves this world. So maybe you've had the experience of thinking through these things with somebody close to you, maybe a parent or a grandparent. Uh, They know the time of their death is coming soon. They They want some help getting their affairs in order for those they'll leave behind when they're gone. Maybe you yourself have gotten or are getting your affairs in order. And you do this with certain priorities in mind, your family, their well-being, maybe your company, your home, your possessions. As Abraham approaches his death, he's not without his own concerns. But the affairs that he needs to get in order are a bit different from ours. And that's because Abraham doesn't just feel the need to arrange for the caretaking of his possessions. As his death draws near... Abraham feels the need to arrange for the caretaking of the very promises of God. So if you remember in the previous chapters of Genesis, the Lord himself has made a covenant with Abraham. God has committed himself to a very special relationship with Abraham. And he's made this very clear... What he's done in this is made very clear that this is an everlasting covenant. And so Abraham rightly expects that the promises contained in the covenant will outlive himself. And so as his days draw to a close now, as Abraham envisions this covenant outliving himself, he senses very keenly the need to make arrangements for the caretaking of the essential elements of the promise. And think about it. As we've seen all throughout the book of Genesis so far... What are those essential elements of the covenant? In the covenant, God has promised Abraham at least two things, a people and a place. And here in Genesis 23 through 25, as Abraham's days draw to a close, this morning's text, it's all about helping us see and rejoice in the way God providentially provides for the upkeep of his promises Through the faithful obedience of his people. So I just want, uh, my goal is just for you to leave this service with more confidence in the providence of God. I think that's what we see here. Let's just turn to the text. I think that's what we're going to see. I just want to walk through this text together and kind of marvel at God's provision. He has not backed away from his covenant promises. He is committed to providing a people and a place for Abraham. Let's begin by taking a brief look at this strange passage that we skipped over here, chapter 23. And here I think we see God's provision of a place. So two broad kind of umbrella categories we're going to see here this morning. First is a place. Second will be a people. Outline will get more complicated as we go, but that's all you need to know for now. Right now, a place. That's what I want us to see. In one sense, chapter 23 is about the fact that Sarah died. It's very simple and and recorded quite uneventfully, honestly. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah dies, and Abraham mourns. But as you'd see, if we were to just kind of keep reading through chapter 23, Seth, uh, excuse me, Sarah's death is not so much the main point of this chapter as it is kind of the occasion of the main point of this chapter, at least as it concerns the mind of the author here. So what seems to be the main point of chapter 23, a bit strangely, is Abraham's seeming obsession about finding the right place to bear, bury his wife, Sarah. You notice that? So notice, where does Sarah die? It says there in verse 2, she died in the land of Canaan. That is, she breathes her last in the land that God had provide, promised to his people. So there's a question that arises here in the text. And that is, would Abraham then return to his homeland to bury Sarah there? That it kind of seemed to be the traditional expectation. But the answer is a pretty emphatic No. In Abraham's mind, there's no going back to his homeland from which he came. Remember that in chapter 11? Not even to bury his wife there. The future is in Canaan. He and she, even in death, are to remain in the place of promise. But with that, there's a problem. I think this is what chapter 23 is getting at for us. So notice, although Abraham's been so immensely blessed... His status in Canaan, even after almost six decades of residing there, his status is still there of an immigrant, of a, a sojourner. In other words, he owns none of the promised land. That is, at least from an earthly perspective, he has no legitimate rightful stake in the land of promise as of chapter 23, which means he has no right going about kind of snooping around in someone else's cave or digging a grave in in their field in order to bury Sarah. But this is the land of promise. And this is the God of the resurrection, which we just saw in chapter 22, right? Which means that Sarah, Sarah, in Abraham's mind, she is not just a body to lay in the ground. She is a future inhabitant of the promised land. And this makes it immensely important for Abraham, by faith, to lay her body to rest, staking their future and forever claim in the land of promise. And this is where we get some of the kind of odd events of chapter 23. So Abraham goes to the inhabitants of the land, the Hittites they're called, and he works a deal to secure a stake in the land of promise. So, if you read through the through the chapter of uh, chapter twenty three, you'd see the focus on the text is very clearly land, field, cave. In other words, the focus is on a place. So, kind of summing these events up, Abraham goes to this people. They to have proceed to have kind of this awkward back and forth together. So Abraham's like, I want this piece of land. You, well, they say, you can have it. He says, I'll pay for it. No, don't pay for it. He says, no, I'm going to pay for it. They say, yes, please pay for it. It's a bit confusing. But The upshot, I think you can see in the bookends of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 23, the end of chapter 23. Look at chapter 23, verse two it says, Sarah died, goes on in the land of Canaan. Verse three, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron at Machpelah was made over, verse 18, to Abraham as a possession. Verse 19, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites." At the end of chapter 23, Abraham's family are no longer merely immigrants in Canaan. They now have legitimate stake in the land of promise. And all this because Abraham insists on continuing to walk by faith. Think about this, did did Abraham see the promises of God fulfilled in his time? No. This is the emphatic point of the book of Hebrews. The father of faith is the father of faith precisely because he didn't get to see the promises fulfilled and yet he lives as if they're as good as done, right? So this is why we get this strange story of him so insistently laying Sarah to rest in the promised land as if it's already his. For all the other things he gets wrong, and he gets a lot of things wrong, Abraham got the heart of the matter right, and that is Abraham knew that the success of his life would be determined not by how much he accomplished for God, but by how much he simply trusts and obeys God. How, how would you say you are measuring success in your own life? Are you measuring success by what you're managing to accomplish, uh, by your title, by your income, by the neighborhood in which you live? What do you suppose those measurements are doing to your soul? I would just commend right off the bat, I would commend Abraham's life liberating paradigm to you. Measure your life not by what you accomplish, but by who you trust. Know God and trust Him one day at a time. Make that your daily life goal. Know God and trust Him. This was the sum of Abraham's life. And the Lord uses his faithfulness and his faith. To continually further his promises. And the result is that so that at the end of chapter 23, Abraham's family has this inheritance in the land of promise, Canaan. So that's one element then of the promise being safeguarded by faith before Abraham moves on to his death. He is safeguarding a place. Next kind of umbrella heading then is a people. People. I wonder if you noticed that one little section we skipped over at the end of chapter 22 last week. So think about what's just happened in the narrative in Genesis 22. We have one of the most detailed, climactic stories of the whole Bible, right? So Abraham finally has this child, Isaac. God shows up, kill the child. Abraham's like, okay, I'll kill the child. And he says, no, don't kill the child. So the child's safe, right? you kind of Kind of coming off this high in Genesis 22, and then we find ourselves in chapter 22, verse 20. Look back there, and here we get what seems to be at first some of the most random verses in the entire Bible. Genesis 22:20. 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, "Behold, Milcah has, born, has also has born children to your brother Nahor." You ever get? Do um, you ever get Christmas cards? complete with long family update letters from like random family members. And you open it and you read and you're like, oh yeah, I I think I kind of remember them. It kind of feels like that's what's happening here with Moses in the narrative. So we go from Abraham binding and setting and grabbing the knife. What's happening? Okay, Isaac's safe. And then the next line, oh, by the way, remember, oh, Uncle Nahor, he had a kid. It's a bit jarring in the text. But read on. Verse 21, Milcah bears some children to Uncle Nahor. Look at 21. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. I feel like the next family to have twins in the church should consider these names. Uz and Buzz has a good ring to it. Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And then this very tiny parenthetical statement in verse 23, which is the whole point. Verse 23, Bethuel fathered. Rebecca. Moses says, listen, reader. While all this is going down with Isaac, back in Abraham's homeland, his brother Nahor fathered this man named Bethuel, who then fathered a little girl in his clan named Rebekah. And those of us who've read the story before, you know who this is. So think, in this one tiny Seemingly random, parenthetical statement, the author is giving us this quick glimpse of God's providential hand and how he's going to preserve the seed of Abraham. He's saying right here, back to back, not only has the Lord preserved Isaac, but just so you know, hundreds of miles away, out of sight and out of mind to all of us, back in Abraham's home country, the Lord has brought into being a little baby girl, Isaac's soon-to-be wife. What's, what's orchestrating the details of the story? It's the providence, the sovereign rule of God. And you know, this is the same God, the same providence that oversees your life, right? Which means that right this very second, while the Lord does the one thing you see that he's doing in your life, he's doing a thousand other things which will one day dovetail into your story. You celebrate your son's third birthday. Meanwhile, hundreds of miles away, a young couple gives birth to a little girl, also known as your future daughter-in-law. The intricacy of God's providence is too much for us to comprehend. We cannot compute the providence of God. But Moses' point is that you can trust it. And you can pay attention to it. You should pay attention to the providence of God. And this is essentially what Moses is doing for us in choosing to tell us this particular story. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible does not tell us nearly nearly even close to everything that's ever gone on in the world, right? So out of the millions of contemporaneous, seemingly more important events in the history of happening at the same time as these events in Genesis... Moses blocks all of them out and draws our attention and says, no, 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 you wanna wanna hear a real story of why you can trust God's power and his careful planning and his providence and his steadfast love? Do you want a story like that? And he says, well, have you heard the story of how the Lord brought a wife to Isaac so that the promise keeps going? And that's what we have here in Genesis 24. And I just wanna use basically the rest of our time To just take this story in as it's unfolded to us. And take in the providence of God and trust in it. All right, so remember, so in this setting, in the mind of Abraham, in light of his coming death, his concern is that God's promise would come to the descendants of Isaac, his son. This has already led him to secure a place, and now he's securing a people. That is, a wife through whom the blessing can multiply. And therefore, right at the beginning of chapter 24, he makes a vow. So I'm going to give us five scenes that I see here in this, under this heading of a people. Five scenes. The first scene is the vow. First nine verses here of chapter 24. Look there. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had... Put your hand under my thigh. All right, so here we can pause and just speak with a little gratitude of the evolution of social customs. So we're content with a good old handshake to seal the deal. No thigh touching necessary. Verse 3 says, Do this, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell but that you'll go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. All right, so you get the gist of Abraham's concern here in chapter 24. He takes his most trusted servant and he tasks that servant to find a bride for his son. That's the mission here in chapter 24. It's time to secure the family line before he dies, which means Isaac needs a wife. The problem, Abraham says, the problem is that we're we're dwelling among a pagan people. A people who do not worship Yahweh, in other words. And we are not to intermarry with people who are not going to worship Yahweh. So Abraham's solution, sends his servant back to his homeland, find a woman from his own people, bring her back to marry Isaac. Just whatever you do, Abraham says, verse 6, Do not, under any circumstances, take my son from the promised land out of it. So you see kind of these twin concerns there even in the, in the vow, right? We must keep the place, that is Canaan, but we must, keep the, must be filled with God-fears in the family, which means going there to find someone. Verse 5, the servant brings up a legitimate concern, <laughs> legitimate to me, so he says, Well, say I do go, and say I, I do happen to kind of find the needle in the haystack, Let's just say this woman, I don't know, doesn't want to come 500 miles back with me to marry somebody she doesn't know. And Abraham essentially says, well, that's, it's not your concern. You do your thing. If she doesn't come with you, it's not on you anymore. But here again, you see Abraham's faith. Uh, The servants worry that this, what if it doesn't work? What do I do? But in Abraham's mind, it has to work. Listen to the way he speaks so confident, confidently, not of his own plans and power, right? Not, not of the way he's manipulating things, but in the character of God. Look there in verse seven. He says, "The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from a land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, "To your offspring I'll give this land, He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there." This is going to happen. Abraham knows his God. He trusts God's covenant. And this is basically the story of how God makes it happen, all behind the scenes. All right, so they shake thighs or whatever they do, and that's the vow. This moves us on to scene two, the journey. The journey. Look at verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, Taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Interestingly, after Abraham demonstrates this utter confidence in the Lord for this, the focus shifts away from Abraham and onto his servant. And the servant is basically kind of the main character taking us through the rest of this chapter's narrative. And we should note that this servant, in this servant, we have one of the most commendable figures in all the narrative up to this point. The servant is simply all about his master's business and all about trusting the Lord. In other words, the servant is two things. He is obedient and he is dependent. In church, if you're looking for two words to characterize your life, I think these are two good ones, obedient and dependent. The servant is completely obedient. It's a stunning absence of self-interest in the narrative. He's been given a commission. His role is simply to play an assigned role in it, and he does so right to the very end. He's also obviously dependent. He demonstrates great confidence, great need, not in himself, not in his own strength, but in the Lord. This is seen right through the whole story, his obedience and his dependence. So in just one verse, we see that he he picks up and he travels hundreds of miles back to Abraham's hometown, the city of old Uncle Nahor. And when he gets there, he doesn't strategize, he doesn't manipulate. What's he do? Verse 11. He prays. He made the camels to kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening. The time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And get this, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. The servant, in great dependence, asked the Lord for what? To show steadfast love. Notice how the servant casts his prayer at this point, right? He's, he's not pleading for his personal desires. He's simply pleading for God to be faithful, to be steadfastly loving in his covenant to Abraham, which is the very thing the Lord is eager to do, right? So he prays and he says, basically, Lord, I know that you've committed yourself to Abraham's good. So show that to be true even now in this situation here. I think it's helpful to pause and just note that this is all we're doing when we pray. When we pray, we do not have to kind of mine the depths of our minds for big words to say that might impress the Lord, right? No, not at all. In prayer, we're simply mining the depths of who God is and what he's promised, and we're asking him just to do those things. Be that God and do those things. We remember for us, we remember God's covenant to us in Christ. And we pray that God would prove his steadfast love to us in that covenant, right? So whatever situation we come up to, whatever, whatever tension we're feeling in our lives, we pause and we pray. We say, Lord, I know that you've shown your love and care for us in Christ. I know that I'm in Christ. I know that I'm in your new eternal covenant of love, that you have committed yourself to me. Would you just prove that to me here and now? Prove your faithfulness to us here and now in this situation. That's what prayer is. It's remembering what God has promised and staking your life on it. And that's what the servant is doing here. And notice he goes on to pray what is a rather interesting prayer there in verses 13 and 14, right? It it seems like he's kind of laying out specific parameters for the Lord to meet. Like he's praying for a sign. He basically says it'd be great if, if the woman you... Shoes would kind of come out and do this and this and this and this. And then I know for sure that she's the one. And in a sense, that's what's happening. But notice in his prayer, he's actually kind of conveying the type of wife that he's seeking for Isaac. A woman who is humble and hardworking, who comes out to draw water. A woman who is generous and hospitable and charitable, even to strangers, who draw out water, not only for himself, but for everyone and everything with him. And by this, he says, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. He's praying, depending. And look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Remember Rebekah? We're starting to see Moses point. Rebecca he says, came out with her water water jar on her shoulder. And then we have this slow, deliberate revelation that this Rebecca just may be the one. Look at verse sixteen. The young woman he says, was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said. "'Please give me a little water to drink from your jar.' She said, "'Drink, my lord.' She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, "'I'll draw water for uh, for your camels also until they have finished drinking.' So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels." Amazingly, detail by detail, Rebecca's actions are lining up with this prayed-for bride. I just love verse 21. Look there. The man, the servant, gazed at her in silence. Kind of envision his jaw on the floor, right? He gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord has prospered his journey or not. He gazes at her in wonder because he knows that there's just one more box to check. A box that we already know, but about which the servant is still in the dark. And that is, is this perfect woman from the right family? Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him these faithful words, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And there it is, the nail in the coffin, that this is the one. Her character, her situation, her ethics, her family, The servant is just standing there, kind of wide-eyed, jaw on the floor, watching the kind providence of the Lord just unfold before his eyes. And significantly, this is not lost on him. Look at how he responds. Verse 26. The man, that is the servant, bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The servant pauses and openly, unashamedly worships the Lord. And for what? What does he say? He says that the Lord has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness towards Abraham. Church, I wonder how, how in tune are we to the fact that the Lord has not forsaken his steadfast love? How in tune are we to the fact that the Lord has not forsaken his faithfulness to those who are his in Christ? Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, it's been a while since I've paused to think about that. And that's because to do this, we have to slow down and take notice we have to pause in life and slow down and look and listen. Do you have that kind of time built into your life rhythm? Do you, do you slow down to stop and marvel and wonder at, the, at what the Lord has done for you in Christ? How could we do that? How could we intentionally arrange our lives, our weeks, our days, our hours? How could we, how could we be more strategic to stop and look and rejoice? You know, for one, this is what we have our weekly worship services for. So if we pose the question, how can we be more intentional about seeing and savoring the being and the work of God? Another way to ask that is to simply say, do you plan to be at church? Listen, I know things have been <laughs> super weird for the last year or so. But it's worth asking, how are you thinking about kind of re into the corporate body of the church. Do you have a plan for that? Listen, if there are more concerns you have and more ways that we can help and plan, please let us know. The point here is not that we check the box of having come together. The point of getting together is this, to help one another slow down and to remember and to marvel that, that God, no matter what the rest of the week told you, the Lord has not forgotten his steadfast love to you in Christ. We need help remembering that. To do that we need to pause and to pause we can and we need to come together. We think we can take a cue from this faithful servant. Let's be a people who are quick to remember, to openly speak of the steadfast love of the Lord when we see it. That's the journey, his journey he says, has been prospered. And this moves us on to scene three, which is the proposal. The proposal. What's happening here is really obvious to the servant. The Lord has chosen, he's provided this woman, Rebecca, to carry on the promise. This is Isaac's bride. It's as good as done in the servant's mind. But the plan still has to pass muster with the men of her house. The servant must take this marriage proposal to Rebecca's family. That is his brother, Her brother, her father, Laban, and Bethuel. Look at verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. She goes, gives a report. Next thing we know, Laban comes strutting out of the house. In this scene, there's a there's a bit of a clue here that Laban's kind of betraying the character that he'll prove to be in the chapters ahead, right? Laban sees the servant's riches, invites him right in, makes a nice, comfortable, feast there for him but the servant as he has done all throughout before he partakes in anything of himself he has to take care of his master's business verse 33 look there then food it says was set down before the servant to eat but he said i will not eat until i have said what i have to say and he that is laban said speak on and we won't read them, but there in verses 34 through 48, the servant just proceeds to recap the whole story, detail for detail, almost an exact retelling. And it is, he, as it is, he's simply bearing testimony to the providential work of God in the situation. He says, I got to say something. And he says, This is who I am is who my master is. This is what I was asked to do. This is what I did. This is what I asked the Lord to do. This is exactly what the Lord has done. This is the role that Rebecca plays in it. And all this is working together to simply prove the Lord's covenantal, steadfast love to my servant, Abraham. And there at the end, then, the servant leaves it to them. Verse 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn and go to the right hand or to the left. It it strikes me how even at this point, the servant continues to utterly depend on the providence of God. Think about it, the servant has seen all that he's seen and yet he seems to put the final decision in the hands of these two men that he's never met. He says, this is what it is, this is what the Lord has done. Are you on board? That's basically what he's saying. As I read it, it's such a a lesson to me in how we live in light of God's providence. That is, we cannot force providence. We do not twist the arm of providence. We are not the potter of our lives, and providence is the clay. We don't control providence. We only live in it. And since it's in the hand of God, we trust it. And that's what the servant's doing here. Which brings us to the fourth scene, the response. We have the proposal, and now we have the response. We have everything, every reason to believe that this thing happening is the will of God. Yet, the way it's cast to us, it just kind of hangs there in the balance as the servant asks for these men's blessing. And then in verse 50, he gets it. Verse 50 says, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And there it is. The mission is accomplished the servant had received his commission. He had traveled hundreds of miles. He'd found Rebekah, this chosen one. And now, by God's grace, he has received her to his master. And so, expectedly, the servant responds perfectly. How would, you, how would you expect the servant to respond at a point like this? I think you would remember that this is the Lord's doing. Look at verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry and silver and of gold, of garments, and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. It's a party. The next day, although the family would like to, for Rebecca to stick around for a while, Rebecca agrees to leave immediately with the servant and his posse to meet her new husband. But notice there in verse 60, The family doesn't let Rebecca get away without giving her a very intriguing blessing. Look there at verse 60 with me. Before she leaves, her family gathers around and they bless Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. they're they're sending Rebecca away to be a wife. But notice they bless her as a mother. And not just any mother. Think about this. Using the very words of God's blessing to Abraham that we just saw in chapter 22, Rebecca's family blesses her, somehow looking ahead to a time when she will be the The mother of many, many children. Thousands upon ten thousands, they say. But notice also they bless her to be the mother, not just of thousands upon thousands, but of one singular special offspring. One child, they say there at the end of verse 60, who will possess the gate of those who hate him. In other words, they bless her and send her away with the word saying, may Rebecca become the mother of a victorious Seed, and isn't is this what this, the whole story is about? Think all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter three. God had promised to Eve this conquering seed, this one who would come from her body, who would who would crush the head of the enemy. Then the Lord goes on and chooses Abraham through whom this child would come, which means that the child would come through Sarah. And then we have Isaac, and now Sarah's gone. What's to become of the promise of a mother, of a victorious child? We're clinging to this promise by faith. But Sarah's gone. Well, it's passed down to this new matriarch, Rebecca. And through this blessing, we see God's promise continuing. That is, from her will come the conquering seed. And praise God, he has come through this family, through Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, through David and all the rest, has come Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Matthew doesn't let us forget the son of David, the son of Abraham. And according to the New Testament, why has Jesus, why has this chosen seed come? Just one line there, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did God choose Abraham and Sarah? And why did did he provide Isaac? Why is he providing Rebecca so providentially? Well, in his good timing, to provide a Savior. Jesus Christ has come. And he has defeated death by going through it. Colossians puts it this way. He says that Jesus Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is those rebellious spirits against the Christ. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities from having sway over us by taking from them their greatest weapon. What is Satan's greatest weapon against you, against us? Accusation. Now, who can accuse those who are in Christ? Who can condemn you? No one. Why? Because one has come who was condemned in your place. And in this, the Christ has come, the promised seed has come to destroy, as John says, the works of the devil. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... You may not know it, but the truth is that you're enslaved. And you may not know it, but my my guess would be that you sense it. That there's something about the way of your life that you've chosen that, that betrays to you that there's a slavery going on in your heart. And the Bible speaks directly to that, saying that we're all slaves of sin and death. We're even slaves to the very enemy of God, that is the devil. Because you are accusable on your own which means that you and me, all of us, need to be liberated. We need to be set free from this accusable state. And praise God, this is the gospel. The Son of God, the seed of Eve and the seed of Sarah and the seed of Rebecca, the seed of Mary, has come. And what he's done is that even though he deserved no condemnation in himself, he put himself under the curse of sin so that it could be all absorbed in him and we could be liberated from up underneath it. And now the gospel says anyone who is now in Christ has already been condemned. Their sin has been put to death, which means there's no sin left to condemn. Which means that anyone who trusts in Christ for salvation... It's no longer under the punishment of sin. They are delivered, set free. This is why the seed was promised, and this is why the seed has come. This is our Christ. This is why, if you don't know, this is why we love Christ. And even here in Genesis 24, this is the story of his coming. This is why we immerse ourselves in the book of Genesis, so that we can marvel and be comforted by the providence of God, not just in sending Christ, but in the way that he sent him. Seeing his fingerprints all over the story. And this story packs even seemingly benign verses like verse 61 with meaning. Verse 61, then Rebecca says, and her young women arose and rode on camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah. It went his way. It's happening. They set out, which brings us to the final scene, verse chapter 24, and that is the union. The union. <clears throat> Have you noticed the amazing absence of one central character? Her husband. It would be nice if he came along. And here, amazingly, Isaac enters the scene for the first time. And it's this scene that, move some people to see this chapter as one big, providentially overseen love story. This scene could be taken out of a movie. Look there, chapter uh, verse 63. Meanwhile, says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. One evening, Isaac goes out to the field to walk and pray. And he looks up, and his eyes meet the eyes of Rebecca. And with that look, the Lord seals this chapter of the story of his providence. Isaac has his bride. Abraham has his peace of mind before he dies. And we have this ongoing promise to hold on to. God is steadfast in his love to his people. I just want to encourage you with something very simple, and that is that you can trust the Lord. He is trustworthy. If there are things or reasons that stand out to you as things that are making it difficult for you to trust the Lord, I just encourage you to make note of them. Pray them. Talk to someone about them. Don't let them remain in the way of your trust, of this trustworthy God. Very briefly, the last verses of our passage this morning are just a few verses there from chapter 25. And with them, we close the book on the earthly life of Father Abraham. uh, Chapter 25 tells us that after the death of Sarah... Abraham actually remarries again, has even more children with this woman named Keturah. But the bottom line Moses wants us to see is none of these other children take the place or the prominence of Isaac, the chosen son. The promise is still very intentionally, very strategically coming through Isaac. In fact, Moses makes it clear in verse 5 that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. All the, if there's a spotlight in the story, it remains on this line of Isaac. And the other children, did they reside in the land of promise? No. To his other sons, verse 6 says Abraham gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward toward the east country. Abraham sends them east, which, as we know from earlier texts, is the direction away from the promise. In other words, right up to the very end of the story, right up to the end of his life, Abraham is doing by faith his part to secure and protect the people of God through Isaac, in the place of God, in Canaan, away from any potential threat to that promise. And that's the end of our story, at least for today. Abraham dies and notably is buried with his wife in the place that he had secured for them, the land of Canaan. Abraham, it could be said, at his death, rests in the land of promise forever and the message of the whole bible is that we those who are sons of abraham those who are in, who are in christ by faith we will rest with him there very soon let's pray together uh, father if there's one thing that we see from this passage today it's that you are a god who oversees all things in your kind providence. You're good, and you are powerful, and so you are trustworthy. Father, we pray that we as a congregation would be a people who readily trust you, who pause to ponder your trustworthiness, and we encourage one another to trust you even in the things that we cannot see. We pray all this that you would be glorified in our lives together as your body. In Jesus' name, amen.